MSW Media. Thanks to Real Paper for supporting Daily Beans. At Real Paper, no new trees are cut down to make their products. Sign up for a subscription and get 30% off your first order at realpaper.com slash dailybeans or use code dailybeans at checkout. And thanks to Fight Camp for supporting the Daily Beans. Fight Camp brings the best workout into your home. You can learn to box or kickbox with access to world-class programming, elite trainers, premium equipment, and smart technology. Now is the best time to sign up for Fight Camp. Purchase this month and get an additional pair of gloves for free at joinfightcamp.com slash beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Monday, January 10th, 2022. Today, the 1-6 committee investigates Trump over criminal conspiracy. Mike Pence weighs cooperating with Congress in the coup investigation. Ron DeSantis lets 1 million COVID testing kits expire in a warehouse. And Alan Dershowitz asked Trump to preemptively pardon Ghislaine Maxwell. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Dana Goldberg. Hi, Dana. How was your weekend? It's okay. And you're feeling much better, yes? Yes, much, much better. Negative uh, rapid test today. I'll take another one tomorrow. So it seems like it came and went. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm, I'm so grateful for science. I'm grateful you were boosted and I'm glad you feel better. Yes. And the only reason my case was mild is because I was vaxxed and boosted. This isn't a mild variant, as we are seeing from the numbers. Big scoop today from Hugo Lowell. For The Guardian, he gets all the big scoops from the 1-6 committee. And his scoop is that the committee is now investigating Trump over criminal conspiracy. So I'm going to talk with him about that a little bit later in the show. Very excited to discuss that with him. Lovely. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for that. <laughs> and uh, for, for my lead story, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to Rachel Maddow, y'all. That's so, right. Buckle in, people. We're taking you on a ride. <laughs> let's do that. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. So I'm going to start somewhere that might not make much sense given the headlines today, but stick with me. On June 29th, 2010, a woman named Brantley, that's her last name, was pulled over for expired tags with her boyfriend, Dante Morris, as a passenger. The officer entered their information into the system, found that Morris had an outstanding warrant for his arrest. So they called a backup officer who arrived on the scene and they approached the passenger side of the vehicle and asked Morris to exit. And as he exited the vehicle, Morris shot both officers in the head. Jesus. And both died from their wounds. Now, Morris ran off on foot and Brantley, who was still in the car, fled the scene, drove away. While she was driving, three phone calls were placed between the two, Morris and Brantley. And then Brantley parked the car at an apartment complex about 500 yards across a lake from a friend's apartment. And she parked that car by backing it up into the space, up against some bushes to conceal the tags. And then they began texting one another and they had the text messages. And of course, all this was caught on dashboard cam. So Morris texted Brantley, Morris texted her that the car didn't need to be near her house or the house she was going to. And she responded saying the car was at the complex, but was way around the corner. And, you know, she said, I should probably move it. She'd never ended up moving it. And Morris told her, just lean back and be loyal. And she responded, 
till death do us part. Now, the police found Brantley. They found her in the apartment about 500 yards, like I said, from the car, from her car. And they questioned her and she freely admitted she had been pulled over, that someone had been injured, that she fled the scene and that there had been a passenger in her car, but she wouldn't give them Morris's name. Now, three days later, Morris was apprehended. He was eventually prosecuted for the murders by the state of Florida. And Brantley was charged with misprision of a felony. And her defense rested their case without presenting any evidence. The jury was instructed that for Brantley to be found guilty of misprision of a felony, they must find that a federal felony was committed, that she had knowledge of the commission of the felony, that she did not, as soon as possible, make that felony known to a judge or some other person in civil or military authority, and that she did an affirmative act to conceal the felony. The jury was also instructed to disclose the affirmative acts of concealment should they find her guilty of misprision. The felony, by the way, she was charged with knowing about and not telling anyone was the possession of a firearm and ammunition, not not the murder. The felony she knew about was that he was in possession of a firearm and ammunition. Now, the jury came back, found her guilty of knowingly and willfully, quote, concealing her knowledge of the possession of a firearm and ammunition by a convicted felon from the authorities by coordinating via phone calls and text messages with Dante Morris, unquote. And the district court gave the jury the opportunity to be more specific about those affirmative acts of concealment, but the jury declined to supplement or alter its verdict at that time. Now, Brantley appealed her conviction, saying the district court should have dismissed the charge of misprision because she was selectively prosecuted, because they violated her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, and because of insufficient evidence, especially with regards to the affirmative act of concealment. According to the court, she did not submit sufficient evidence that she was selectively prosecuted because she was unable to prove that someone similarly situated was not charged with misprision. And Brantley only offered one comparator. That's what you call someone who was similarly situated, somebody who did just what I did and knew just what I knew that you didn't charge. But the court found that McMillan, her friend, whose apartment she was at, was not similarly situated because, first of all, she wasn't at the scene of the murder. She didn't see the gun. She didn't see the ammunition. And Brantley actually threatened her with physical violence if she told law enforcement what she knew. So she wasn't similarly situated. Brantley also didn't meet the burden that her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination was violated because she effectively waived that right by telling law enforcement she was pulled over. She had a passenger. She she didn't remain silent. Right. She said someone was injured. She fled the scene, et cetera. So that she can't claim the fifth after the fact. And that brings us to her argument that there wasn't sufficient evidence, particularly with regards to an affirmative act of concealment. The appellate judge's ruling notes that misprision, 18 U.S. Code Section 4, has been construed by the 11th Circuit Court to require that affirmative act of concealment in a case from 2002 called Itani v. Ashcroft. And again, in the Third Circuit decision, Bear v. the United States in 2013. And the judge writing the ruling, the decision, said that the text messages and phone calls about hiding the car proved or was enough evidence that she was affirmatively concealing the felony. Her hiding, her texting Morris about hiding the car and then hiding the car was an affirmative concealment. I do believe I know where you're going. Keep going. This is my favorite murder (laughs) podcast. Let's continue. (laughs) Now, however, (laughs) another one of the judges of the three judge panel, because, you know, when you go to the appeals court, there's three judges and one of them writes the decision. One of them writes the ruling. Another judge wrote a concurrence to the ruling 
because she agreed with the ruling, but she disagreed with the characterization by the first judge that it was not a close call at all. She argued that it was a close call because hiding the car didn't necessarily prove she was concealing the possession of a firearm. However, because of the heavy burden required to overturn a conviction, she said the conviction should stand. She just wanted everyone to know it was a closer call than outlined in the original opinion. Now, I first became familiar with the crime of misprision of a felony during the Mueller investigation, specifically in discussions I had with other law enforcement folks, former U.S. attorneys, about Manafort, knowing that he was handing polling data over to the Russians and trying to conceal that fact. And then I started wondering about how a misprision charge might fit into Trump's plot to pressure Pence to overturn the election. As you know, I've been talking about obstructing an official proceeding, 18 U.S. Code Section 15 C2, since Liz Cheney used that language from the statute during the Meadows contempt hearings. And of course, you know, we've talked about obstruction of Congress, 505, inciting an insurrection, which I think is 2381, or insurrection itself, and several other potential statutes the Trump cabal possibly violated. But with misprision, let's say with Pence, I think, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but I think his call to Dan Quayle <laughs> shows that he had knowledge <laughs> that what Trump was trying to pressure him to do was a felony. Right. But did he affirmatively try to conceal that felony? Now, there was reporting that he in fact, called to approve the National Guard when Trump wouldn't. And allegedly, we know there were discussions about the 25th. Well, I should say allegedly there were discussions about the 25th Amendment as the Pence team huddled in that loading dock after allegedly being locked out of their offices. Could his call to the Pentagon show that he did tell a military or civil authority about the felonies Trump committed? I don't know. But I think it's something to think about, especially with the news we have today about Pence considering cooperating with the January 6th committee. And I'll be talking with Hugo Lowell later in the show about his scoop that the 1-6 committee is now considering conspiracy crimes and criminal referrals for Donald Trump with conspiracy, not just obstruction of an official proceeding. And they are now working on connecting the Pence plot with the violence at the Capitol. Now, Dana, I know that was long. That so is thanks okay. for indulging me. My pleasure. And if anyone has any insights with regards to misprision of a felony and any affirmative acts of concealment by anyone involved in the insurrection, such as, I don't know, Meadows and members of Congress using Signal to conceal their crimes or conceal Trump's crimes or Clark refusing to hand over documents or Trump even trying to block the National Archive documents. You know, I think obstruction is probably easier to prove, not obstruction of official proceeding, just obstruction of justice. But I think we will see more discussions about misprision in the coming months. I think you're probably right. And AG, another big scoop today from the Sunday Times in the UK, actually. Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer, his former lawyer, lobbied Donald Trump to preemptively pardon Ghislaine Maxwell during the final days of his presidency after talks with her family. Hmm. So, yeah, Alan, I kept my underwear on Dershowitz. A former Harvard Law School professor, as we know, he was representing Epstein. He represented Epstein during the, the noughties and, uh, Trump during his first impeachment trial, okay? So he has since been accused of abuse by one of Epstein's underage victims. He, of course, denies it. Now, at the end of the former guy's term in office, the lawyer, we're talking Dershowitz, used his close relationship with the president to obtain pardons for about a dozen paying clients, okay? Hmm. So Trump 
used his executive powers to pardon or commute the sentences of various convicts, some of whom were political allies and even considered pardoning himself, as we know, for unspecified crimes. Just whatevs, just whatevs and pardoning myself for whatevs. He was also reported, though, to have taken a sudden interest in Maxwell's fate. So Trump allegedly said, and I quote, this is allegedly, but has she said anything about me? Is she going to talk? Will she roll on anybody? Now, Trump did not ultimately pardon Maxwell, as we know, but wished her well. I think we all remember that was fucking creepy Mm. uh, when asked about her prosecution. Now, Frank Faluzzi reminded us on Twitter that had she received a pardon AG, it would have meant that she would have had difficulty in invoking the Fifth Amendment you know, her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and could have therefore been forced to testify. So Hmm. that is a really interesting piece of uh, information we have. I hope Dershowitz goes down for this shit because he should have in the first place. So I actually hope anyone, you know, we have the woman who has now been convicted of trafficking. Well, she trafficked these children, these children to somebody. I want all of them to go to prison. I don't care what political party they're in, all of them. Agreed. Agreed. And in Florida. Dana, Ron DeSantis and the state's top emergency management official confirmed Thursday that 800,000 to 1 million COVID test kits in the state's stockpile recently expired without being used. At a Thursday news conference, Kevin Guthrie, the director of Florida's Division of Emergency Management, told reporters when asked about the state's stockpile, quote, we had between 800,000 and a million test kits about they're called Abbott rapid test kits in our warehouse that did expire. Now, Guthrie said the reason the tests expired in the last week of December was because there was inadequate demand. Mm-hmm. I call bullshit yeah. all the way from mm-hmm. California. <laughs> That's a long bullshit call. Yep. And it's correct. State officials had already requested a three-month extension on the test's use from federal officials when they were last set to expire in September, only for the tests to again sit unused. Florida officials are again seeking a three-month extension on the tests, but have yet to receive an answer on their continued viability from federal officials and the manufacturer. This just reminds me of Trump claiming that if we simply didn't test for COVID, the number of cases would magically disappear. Of course, the COVID wouldn't disappear, just an accurate count of the number of cases would. And remember how he refused to let cruise ships dock because he didn't want to add to his numbers? That's just what this sounds like to me. Totally. Not to mention DeSantis had some bullshit statement in a press conference when he was like, what other uh, virus do people preemptively test you know, to make sure they're not sick? I'm like, um, every STD, like anyone who wants to sleep with the stranger usually goes in and goes, hey, am I safe? Or I don't know, colonoscopies or mammograms. The guy's Your a fucking idiot. wife with cancer. Oh, I can't. I know. I know. <sighs> I really want him to go away. All right. Finally. And this story, I'm so sorry to hold this to the end, and it is a sad one. At least 19 people have died, including nine children, during a five-alarm Bronx fire on Sunday morning, just yesterday, one of the worst infernos the city has seen. Now, the majority of the victims suffered serious smoke inhalation and are being treated at five hospitals across the Bronx. Fire Commissioner Dan Nigro said the blaze, its cause unknown, but not believed to be suspicious in nature, was the most horrific the Bronx had seen since the Happy Land Social Club arson fire in 1990. That claimed 87 lives. Mm. And this is a quote. This is a horrific, horrific, painful moment for the city of New York. And the impact of this fire is going to really bring a level of just pain and despair to our city. The numbers are horrific, said Mayor Eric Adams at the scene. He went on to say, we have over 32 people who are life-threatening at this time. We have nine serious injuries, 22 injuries that are not life-threatening, with over 63 people in total. 
Now, AG, this is a developing story. Our hearts are and our thoughts are with the families and the community in the face of this horrific tragedy. So know that the Beans family is thinking of everyone in the area. And we're so, so sorry. Yes, sending big love and thoughts to New York. And just a brief update. It was apparently a space heater that started the fire. So everyone, please check your space heaters. Be careful. Make sure there's no lint on them. You know, make sure it's being used properly. It's plugged into a surge protector, et cetera. I know a lot of us are using space heaters right now. Yeah. All right. We'll be right back with Hugo Lowell to discuss his scoop about the 1-6 committee looking into conspiracy crimes and the plot to overthrow democracy. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG, and this segment of The Beans is brought to you by Allform. They craft high-quality, customizable furniture for your home. They create premium furniture tailored to meet your needs, and then they ship it to you right to your doorstep, free of charge. And and they do it in record time, too. With Allform, you can customize your own luxury furniture using premium materials at a fraction of the cost. I chose a three-seater sofa in whiskey-colored leather with walnut legs and a chaise lounge. It's comfortable, stylish, and it looks great. And all form, and like I said, they ship fast. It arrives in the mail in just three to seven days, and it's easy to put together with no tools required. They have beautiful armchairs and love seats, all the way up to eight seat sectionals, and you can always start small and buy more seats later if you want. Best of all, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. No weird fees or anything. And they also have a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash dailybeans. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for listeners at allform.com slash dailybeans. Everybody, welcome back. Proud to be joined today by my friend over at The Guardian, congressional reporter Hugo Lowell. Hugo, hello. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. So you and I, we talk a lot and we've talked quite a bit about obstruction of an official proceeding, 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2, after Liz Cheney's language during the uh, Meadows contempt hearings. And that was all about the inaction of, of, of the president or the former president. But now, in a new scoop out by you in The Guardian, it, it looks like it appears that they're looking at the actions the Trump cabal actually took. Can you talk a little bit about what you have found out about conspiracy investigations into, into Trump and what happened on January 6th? Yeah, so the committee, according to my sources at least, is uh, has been quietly looking into whether Trump oversaw some sort of criminal conspiracy that connects the political elements of his plan to have Pence, you know, throw the election and the extremist groups that actually stormed the Capitol. And the reason why they're going down this route is because when they trawled through all of Mark Meadows' text messages and other communications provided by Um, witnesses that have testified and cooperated with the committee, the picture that started to emerge is that the White House first kind of directed Republican members of Congress to execute this, the the objection plan and have um, have them repeatedly object to states of electors for Biden. And they also appeared to have read in some Republican members of Congress into uh, Trump's plan for Pence, which was to you know either reject states of electors completely or throw the election to the House, where Republicans had a majority. And so, when you look at that and you think, "Huh, the Trump White House directed the political elements of this," well, 
the committee now wants to figure out if it was connected to the violence and it was a almost like a two-pronged plan. Hmm. And that's kind of the lane they're going down now. Yeah, and that's the what I was just about to ask you about, too, because we kind of caught Raskin a couple of weeks ago in the halls of Congress answering a question from a reporter at CNN who said, we're getting a very clear picture, or clearer picture, a fine-grained picture, I think he said, of the, I guess, connective tissues between the bloodless coup and the violent attack on the Capitol, right? And that I would, in my mind, certainly constitute a conspiracy. Of course, whether they have evidence to make criminal referrals that, you know, rise to the reasonable doubt and obtaining and maintaining a conviction is is another story. But it seems that, you know, I had asked you a few times, like, okay, so the inaction, yeah, that makes sense. But what about the action? And it seems like they're actually trying to do to, and they have evidence to tie those things together. Well, so they have evidence of the underlying, I think, obstruction part, right? And this would be kind of a criminal. We're not exactly sure what sort of criminal conspiracy they may uncover, if at all. And we're not sure whether this is a criminal conspiracy to obstruct a congressional proceeding, which is what some writers have been charged with, or if it's a kind of a wider conspiracy. Uh, it's not exactly clear yet. And I, I wish I had sources that would tell me to that extent, but. Uh, us, and you're going to have to you're going to have to forgive me for not getting a half a picture. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay because I remember I remember asking you it's a conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy to obstruct congressional to Congress, conspiracy, a seditious conspiracy. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of conspiracy right. statutes, and none of them carry the same weight sentencing wise as obstructing an official proceeding, except seditious conspiracy. Most of these seem to be like sort of maybe tag on statutes or additional, I guess, crimes that the committee may refer if they feel that they have enough evidence to refer it to the Department of Justice. Yeah. And look, the way it was described to me is, you know, we're looking at a criminal conspiracy. And, you know, while we can't tell you exactly what we may uncover, it would be very serious if we find out what we think we, that may that that may exist, and I just thought that was really significant. I think the other thing that my sources told me was they don't have evidence tying Trump directly to the attack portion of the Capitol attack itself. And you know, this was the this was the caveat: is like, look, we're trying to see if there's a connection between the political elements of the plan and the kind of insurrection elements of the plan, like the the armed version of the plan, and they don't have that yet. Uh, and I just think that's important to mention because I don't want people to to, to read this and, and listen to this and, and take away the idea that they're going to connect it in one fell swoop. It's not how this works. Yeah. And of course, what the committee uncovers isn't necessarily what the Department of Justice can right. charge for. Right. And, you know, the committee may have witnesses and and you know documents that suggest, right, and, and you kind of touched on this, that suggest there was a conspiracy and that the political elements were connected to the violent insurrectionist elements. But as you say... It's not clear that a Justice Department prosecutor would look at that or Garland would look at that and think, yes, this is a crime. We can definitely charge him and indict and you know return a, a, success, a successful prosecution. And the Justice Department obviously works on different, very different rules than the committee does. And, you know, it's possible, right? The committee may not make a criminal referral for conspiracy. Like, let's say, let's say just for the sake of argument, they were able to uncover, you know, evidence that would rise to the level of seditious conspiracy. Or, you know, just because they, the committee thinks that does not necessarily mean, A, that they recommend that. They may just put it into a report and you know, leave it for an enterprising prosecutor to pick up. 
And even if they do put it into a referral, it's not clear that the Justice Department will act on it. Right. And you don't just want to put everything you possibly can in a criminal referral because that could jeopardize any convictions on appeal by saying, hey, they threw the kitchen sink, you know, at the Department of Justice. So I just yeah, we definitely need to temper the expectations there. But that, you know, the fact that they're looking at a conspiracy and that that truth may come out in a in a public hearing, that is very explosive in the court of public opinion. Right, exactly. And you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of what this committee is doing is going to end up that way. Whatever the committee finds, half the country or a minority of the country, at least, is not going to believe anything the committee finds in its report. So at the end of the day, you know, even if them, even if there are criminal referrals, the committee is really there to say, look, this is what we've uncovered. After finding out what we've uncovered, do you still believe Trump to, you know, let's say he runs for, for the next election, you know, the best candidate for president? Yeah, absolutely. And some breaking news. While we were just getting on the phone here, phone. Okay. <laughs> I'm still in 1996. Um, apparently, Jim Jordan has written a letter to the committee, and he actually says the, to the Honorable Benny Thompson, so I guess that's nice. That is nice. Yeah, right? He could just say Benny. <laughs> but immediately just, he, he does open, like, immediately the first sentence, I was already tired of him. But he does say Representative <laughs> Thompson as opposed to Chairman Thompson. Yeah, oh, he, only at the top yeah. does he put it up there, like, for official stuff. But, you know, he, he opens up saying, the American people are tired of Democrats, nonstop, partisan witch hunt, meh, meh, meh. And he he goes on to say, as you know, as you well know, I have no relevant information that would assist the committee in any legitimate legislative purpose. That is totally not true, but whatever. And then talks about uh, Pelosi failing to have the appropriate security posture, which is one of the, you know, one of the uh, falsehoods and whitewashing statements that um, the Republicans tend to make. But it's just a very long, wordy letter saying, I don't have any shit for you and you you don't have a legislative purpose and you were formed improperly and you're you're not legitimate. But he's writing this in in the face of the the fact that several courts have said and have ruled that this committee has a legitimate legislative purpose. And we're still waiting for January 14th for the Supreme Court to decide on the National Archives thing, which I think would be the final say. I'm surprised he maybe he had a deadline he had to write this letter by. But, uh, you know, he he didn't wait for that. What are your top line thoughts on this letter? Because I think the thing that stood out to me the most is he says, here's a bunch of basically here's a bunch of your bullshit. Just a few examples of your misleading narrative. Uh, he says, you falsely accused Bernie, Bernie Carrick of attending a meeting on January 5th when Carrick was actually in New York City. And that's the first time I've heard that accusation. But that's according to John Solomon, who who. <laughs> has uh, deep ties to Trump world. But what, what are your top line thoughts on, on that particular thing or anything in this letter? I thought it was an interesting letter, right? I, I read this letter and I think this is a letter that says I'm not going to cooperate. And it's basically Republican talking points in our letter. So he's just going to collate all of those. And that's fine. You know, I've actually reached out to, uh, as I told you just before we, we went on air, that I'd reached out to one of his staffers and just wanted to confirm if he really was not cooperating. And the response was, you know, quote, I'll read it to you. Uh, the letter speaks for itself. I can give you a call tomorrow uh, to discuss in more detail. Mm. But I think they basically this is saying, and this is laying out the reasoning and the groundwork for saying why he's not going to cooperate. But some of the claims are just, as you're saying, kind of nonsense, right? He, he starts off by saying, you know, if the select committee has 
no real purpose and you know that he can't speak to Pelosi's failure to ensure that there was appropriate security at the Capitol. And this is one of Republicans' favorite talking points. And I always thought how nonsense this is. And I wrote this back in the summer because, sure, Pelosi might have been in charge of security at the House, although she really wasn't, right? It's the Capitol Police Board. But if you're going to go after Pelosi in the House, you also have to go after McConnell in the Senate, right? So it's always telling to me that they go after Pelosi, but no one ever mentions the fact that, well, if Pelosi really was responsible for security in the, in the House side, then McConnell would be really responsible for security on the Senate side. And the fact that the fact of the matter is neither of them are really responsible for security on either side. It's the Senate and House Sergeant at Arms and the Capitol Police Board. So that's just a nonsense claim. Uh, and then he also talks about how uh, you know, it doesn't have a clear legislative purpose. And as you said, and I've said on you know, plenty of times, both the D.C. district and the appellate courts have said, you know, that's nonsense as well. The select committee does have a clear legislative purpose and has ruled like unanimously as such. This thing about Bernie Kerrick. So this was uh, this is not actually this is he's right in that the committee did when they subpoenaed Kerrick say he was at the Willard on January 5. It turned out he wasn't at the Willard. He had been working out of the Willard previously, but on that specific date, he was not. He was back in the city. He also makes these two other points about how the committee doctored messages. You know, that's a kind of uh, a pretty spinned reading of it. What happened was um, they abridged some of the text messages to make it fit on slides, but they the committee put a period at the end of a sentence when it was it should have been like an ellipsis. So that's what he's getting at. They're really kind of picking around the side, he doesn't really answer the points raised in the, the letter the committee sent to Jordan. And so I think really this amounts nothing more than talking points and laying the groundwork for why he's not going to cooperate. Yeah, to me, it just seems like he's he's mad that he wasn't be able to be on the committee and say this stuff on TV. And so he's, also he's put it in a letter so that, so that we're all talking about it. And yeah, that Dr. Text message, if you read the entire text message, it's actually worse Right. <laughs> then then, the, then the, the, the half of it that they that they show, they didn't doctor anything. They just cut it off at the at the half point. It wasn't like uh, Bill Barr removing words from findings right, from Mueller right. and completely changing the, you know, the uh, the statements that, that Mueller was trying to make. It was a little bit different there. And of course, he doesn't bring that up, you know. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see. You know, I, I look forward to seeing what his spokesperson says, his aide says about whether or not he's technically refusing to cooperate. But I mean, I think we can probably guess. But yeah, I'm with you. I think this is just a way to get these Republican talking points out into the public. And most of them are nonsense. And most of them have been <laughs> disproved or debunked in, in, in some some respect. Um, yeah, and he, do, and he does mention in, also in the letter about how it's not properly constituted because McCarthy, McCarthy's picks, i.e. him, as you say, uh, weren't allowed to serve on the committee. But if you go back to the organizing resolution for the committee, when it was first enacted, it says Pelosi may consult with the minority leader, but it doesn't say she has to consult <laughs> with the minority leader. And so she had always baked mm -hmm. in this fail-safe. So for Republicans to turn around and say, oh, it doesn't conform to the House rules and the organizing resolution is, again, nonsense. So I think this letter is just really paragraphs of nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. And he brings up the impeachment, the second one, uh, yeah, just all sorts of acrimonious recalcitrant BS. But anyway, well, I look forward to, see to seeing how the committee responds. Probably with an eye roll, to be honest. Yeah. But. Yeah. You know, if they could just send a letter back just with 
like Liz Lemon eye roll on it. <laughs> like a gift, uh, like a gift of that uh, be... Liz's eye roll. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That that would be great. All right. Well, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Thanks for your hard work. And uh, we will keep following you. Everybody follow Hugo Lowell on Twitter, on social media, and also definitely check out The Guardian, subscribe, read. It's some of the some of the best committee reporting out there. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me as always. Alan. I appreciate it. No problem. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG for the beans. Tens of thousands of trees are cut down every day to make single-use paper products that are flushed down the toilet or thrown out in overflowing landfills. And one quarter of the carbon humans release into the atmosphere is removed by our forests, making them a vital component of the fight against climate change. Real Paper is here to help that fight. Real Paper is a sustainably made product that helps reduce deforestation and single-use plastic waste. At Real Paper, all their products are 100% plastic-free and made without virgin tree fibers, meaning no new trees are cut down to make their toilet paper or paper towels. Real developed a premium, sustainable alternative so that you don't have to sacrifice quality to help the planet. Plus, making this small change can have a big impact. So far, Real Paper has eliminated over 250,000 pieces of single-use plastics. Plus, each purchase of Real helps fund access to clean sanitation around the world. I love the fact they provide sustainable options. Real Paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or one-time purchases on their website. All orders are conveniently delivered to your door in 100% recyclable plastic-free packaging as well. So if you head to realpaper.com slash dailybeans and sign up for a subscription using our code dailybeans, all one word at checkout, you'll automatically get 30% off your first order. That's realpaper, R-E-E-L. P-A-P-E-R dot com slash Daily Beans or enter promo code Daily Beans to get 30% off your first order. Real paper is toilet paper and paper towels that change lives. And today's show is also brought to you by Fight Camp. Are you ready to make 2022 the best year of your life? Fight Camp brings the best workout in the world right into your home and it makes it fun. Learn to box or kickbox from home with access to world-class programming, elite trainers, premium equipment, and smart technology that turns your workout into an interactive experience. Fight Camp has thousands of classes with new workouts added each week. You'll always find something fresh and new. You can explore different workout styles, different lengths, different trainers, difficulty levels, and more. You'll never get bored. They offer quick workouts to maximize efficiency with high-intensity interval training. You can get a killer workout in as little as 20 minutes. And if you have little to no boxing experience, no sweat. Fight Camp has your back. Their programs are designed to teach you the basics of boxing and kickboxing so you can build a strong foundation. In addition to tracking your workout progress and setting guided goals, you can also observe your progress over time with Fight Camp's real-time data. I love the flexibility and variety offered by Fight Camp. I can work out every day at home. I don't have to go to a gym. It's safe. It's always something new. There's always something different to keep me interested and motivated. And now is the best time to get Fight Camp. Take advantage of their holiday deal going on now. If you purchase this month, you'll get an additional pair of gloves for free. Just go to joinfightcamp.com beans to get an additional pair of gloves for free. Again, that's joinfightcamp.com slash beans. Again, joinfightcamp.com slash beans. You'll be glad you did. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news. It's on the way. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, anything you want to send us, you can do that by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. And thank you so much for all the good news you send in. Seriously, it's just like this never ending, awesome, just chasm of good news, just 
I, I love that everyone has such good news stories that we can all share and that we can all end end the show with a with on an up note. Absolutely. And it's a great way for us to start our week. So thank you. Yes. And I'm going to take the first two here because they're real short. The first one's from BJ. No pronouns. Hey, Allison and the Beans team. I was low key dying over here in North Park. As gross 12-year-old boys, we did the whole fart in a jar experiment, and it worked far (laughs) too well. And I never remember it losing its potency. Thanks for making me, and I imagine many others go, wow, I can't believe I did that. (laughs) Probably in the same way you found yourself saying, so this is where that conversation led to. (laughs) Thanks for the laugh and the news. And hey, North Park, that's my neighborhood. Right on. And next up from Aliyah, no pronouns given. You're right. Djokovic is a douche. However, he made those comments before Osaka's incident, not because of them. Thank you for the correction. Ah, Very much. correction. Thank you. And she says, thanks for everything. Well, I'm sorry. I don't know the pronouns here, but Elias says, thanks for everything. Yep. Thank you for the correction. All right. This is from Darcy. Pronouns she and her. Hi, Beans Queens. Just a quick note for yesterday's good news sender worried about his daughter and her partner moving to Provo for medical school. Don't worry. Provo isn't the best, but Salt Lake City is a short drive and there's a thriving and really large LGBTQ plus community. Utah's actually way better than you'd think on the LGBTQ plus issues. I'm a mom of a trans kid. There's a lot of support here. Your girls will be great. <sighs> totally unrelated pop pet tax attached. Last time I sent you Pepper, the boxer healer. So this time you get the diva cat. Her full name is Countess Frida Kahlo, mixed stumpy tail, Scorsese Smith Stockbridge Third. Very old money. <laughs> That was hilarious. Very old money. But you can just call her Frida. Uh, The name is because A, the eyebrows, (laughs) and B, her tail has a birth defect. So it's about half length and she has no cat-like tail nuance. Oh my God. Look at the eyebrows. Oh my God. I love the way this cat is sitting. Just a (laughs) short note, Darcy, I want to also add something to that one. You're absolutely right. And for the person that wrote in, and obviously this wasn't my day on the podcast, but there is a big festival called Love Loud, and it actually started in Provo, but it got so big, they had to move it to a massive stadium. And usually Dan Reynolds and Imagine Dragons headlines that I've spoken at the event, and it went from a small park in Provo to a football stadium the next year and sold out. And it was one of the most affirming LGBTQ plus events for Mormons and the area, all of Salt Lake, Utah. It's beautiful. So keep an eye out for that if you are listening because I know they are bringing it back now that COVID, well, they're bringing it back when it's safer. So it would be a really awesome place to go, to, to, to go see the festival. And what's it called again? Love Loud. That's amazing. That's so awesome. And, and thanks for, for you know, writing in, helping assuage some, some concerns that I imagined you, you know, some, some folks had, especially the, the person who wrote him with the good news. 100%. Next up from Hannah, no pronouns given. I don't know whether this is good or bad news or, oh, I don't know whether this is good, bad news or bad, good news, <laughs> but it's not good, good news. Oh, geez. You mentioned the plight of the famous tennis player who tried ah. to enter Australia illegally. The hotel he's being held in is in Melbourne, where he waits for a court hearing on Monday. It's also home to 32 asylum seekers who've been held there for nine years oh without a hearing. The asylum seekers are here legally, unlike the now two tennis players in detention who entered the country without the required documentation. The good news is that because you mentioned the famous tennis player, I can get you to mention the asylum seekers, too. Nice. For my pet tax, I give you Kitty, not her real name, just what we call her, who was separated from her mother for a few days when she was only two and a half weeks old. So we had to help feed her and her litter mates until mom showed up again. 
Somehow, Kitty ended up moving in with us. Yeah, it's always somehow, right? Mm-hmm. When she was old enough to leave home. She has the best tail ever. Oh, my God. She's a domestic short hair warehouse cat crossed with an unidentified alley cat. So we have no idea what breed makes up her looks. Link to more on the Asylum Seekers will be in the description. Look at this floofy tail on this kitty. That is a flo- Oh, look at the baby. Oh, I know. The baby kit. Oh, I love kittens. I just do. Oh, the arms. Oh. Nine years. There's a little part of Maine Coon in there. Yeah, nine years for some of these Asylum Seekers. That's unconscionable. Legally. Legally entering. The- My God. Thank you very much for that. And obviously we'll have that link for those people that would like more information. And this is from John, pronouns he, him. Thank you for, from a listener from Yorkshire in the UK. As an American file, (laughs) it's been heartbreaking to see the mess that the US has got itself into over the last few years. Thank you for fighting the good fight. Yeah, tell me about it, John. My pet tax, my pet tax is a, a border doodle boba. She's five months old and gives me plenty of walks around the moorland where I live, giving me an opportunity to stick my headphones in and listen to your show. Mm-hmm. I also have a wrong lyric so- story. I was convinced that Maroon 5 was singing Move My Jacket. One day I was singing a lot. My girlfriend corrected me saying the song was Moves Like Jagger. And I laughed at her, really laughed at her. Very quickly, an iPhone was thrust into my face with the song title showing. I've never quite lived that down in dismissive tone. Some might say slightly arrogant that I took. (laughs) Since then, whenever I start to show even the slightest hint of dismissing something my girlfriend is saying, she immediately starts singing the song in a mocking tone. Good for her. I hope she sings, move my jacket. I hope she sings the wrong lyrics oh mockingly. My God. As well. Take care, folks. And this pet tax is <gasps> an adorable puppy. Oh, look at that border doodle. So Aww. cute. I love doodle mixes. So soft. Looks so soft. Oh, all right. Thank you for that. Finally, from Anonymous, pronoun she and her. Hi, Beans Gals. Regarding the Lord's Prayer, as a kid, I thought it was Halloween be thy name. And I could not figure out why in the world our father, who art in heaven, would be named Halloween. And my sis thought Hail Mary was fruit of the loom Jesus instead of fruit of thy womb Jesus. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Here's truly a mixed up Catholic kid. Here's some pod pet tax. Pick up my rescue dog and the reason I get up every morning. His name is Bo and he's the best companion ever. A.G., I hope you feel better soon. Standard poodle. Oh, look at Bo. I can like I never get these for guess the mutt. Like I feel like I <laughs> I would nail that one. Uh, and I I feel you. The reason I get up every morning. So uh, you know these are pets. You know, give us purpose. Uh, I feel that. I feel that deeply. So thank you for submitting that, and thanks to everybody for submitting your good news. We really appreciate it. We always need it, especially on a Monday. Oh yeah. And um, these are just absolutely lovely. And I really like the, I can't tell if this is bad, good news or good, bad news. It's not good, good news. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I just want everyone to know that we welcome good, bad news, bad, good news, and good, good news. Anything you want to send us, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact Dana. Yes. Any final thoughts for I do have a final thought for those of you that didn't hear. And I know you may think I'm crazy. I am not. I'm being safe. And I promise you, I'm going to be doing a live show in New York City, February 9th. It's a Wednesday. There's already a lot of stories and news articles saying that New York City has hit its peak of this variant and that will start coming down and it'll be safe. And we're going to make sure we take all all COVID precautions. But I'll be at the Green Room 42. So if you want tickets, they're starting very cheap, inexpensive, 19 bucks. 
and it's the greenroom42.venuetix.com. And I want you to come see me live. It'll be my first show of 2022. And we're going to have a good time. Keep you safe. But I'd love to see you in New York City. That would be so great. Thank you. Thank you for that final thought. And again, I just want to like re-up the thoughts and love hearts, big hearts, big love, big hugs and, and going out to the Bronx. Absolutely. And the community there, just such an incredible, incredible community and the resilience and the people. And it's just amazing. And um, I just, I can't, I can't fathom how horrific that, that fire must be. I mean, biggest fire in 30 years, you know, please again, be safe. If you're using a space heater, especially in the winter in New York right now, and the other cold places around this country, just make sure you're, it's safe. It's not near anything that's flammable. It's, it's in a, you know, a grounded outlet and that there's no lint on the back. Just please be careful. You're important to us and to your loved ones. So be safe. Yeah. Yes, please. And until tomorrow, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com.